0: Mindfulness Mode.
1: Stay here, please. Please stay here. We need you.
0: Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Langford. Mindful Tribe, I am here with an award winning author, but not only is she an award winning author, but she is a runner. And she is a runner that I really very much look up to because wait till I tell you, she has done so much running. She has run two ultra marathons, which is 50Ks, 50, 50 Ks, three full marathons. Did I say three? No, it's two. She has done two ultra marathons, three full marathons, 26 half marathons in 18 states and more than 60 shorter races. So she just keeps going and going and going. She lives in Ohio and she runs a lot of times with her dog, her yellow lab. So I'm so excited to talk today to my guest, Nita Sweeney. Welcome to the show, Nita. Are you hey, are you in Bruce. mindfulness uh, mode today?
1: I am. Yes, I'm I try to always be in mindfulness mode, but I'm just been so excited about this because it feels like such a good fit. We have so much in common and I can't wait to, to have a big chat about all this stuff with you. So oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: It's a perfect fit, all right, because I know that you are all about mindfulness. You're all about being focused in the moment. But tell me, what does mindfulness mean to you, Nita?
1: Well, I pulled out my favorite quote from one of my favorite authors. There's so many really good mindfulness authors. But John Kabat-Zinn, from his book, Wherever You Go, There You Are, um, has probably the simplest definition, and so I'm just going to read that. Sure. He says mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way on purpose, in the present moment and non-judgmentally. And he's been um, in another another book, he talks about doing it as if your life depended on it. And that sense of urgency, That really resonates with me because I came to mindfulness when I was in a crisis place. I came to meditation when I was in a crisis place, and it's been a go-to for me for many, many years, and continues to be. So that's that's what I I think about it is um, being in the present moment on purpose, as if your life depended on it.
0: Well, I really like that definition, and I want to thank you for sharing it with us. You are such a prolific writer. You've done a ton of writing over the years and you have a new book coming out in August, which is called Make Every Move a Meditation. And thank you for sending me a little preview. Well, it's not a preview, it's the whole book, but before it's published because it's coming out in August. Make Every Move a Meditation, Mindful Tribe. You have to check this book out. It is so great. So, so Nita, I'm just wanting to dig right in and talk about this book. Tell me what you learned by writing this book because you have written so much. But what made this book special?
1: It, it really helped me slow down and figure out the components of the way I practice meditation and specifically mindfulness meditation. I've studied with a number of teachers over the years I've developed my own practice. I teach myself. But when you have to explain it to someone, when you have to set it down, especially on paper, it helped me really understand it better. And it helped me practice, too, because I would write something up and then I'd go for a run or go for a walk with the dog. And I would think, OK, I said I could do this. Well, can I actually do this? I mean, I was, you know, it's like you're doing it. But when you try to explain it, oh, is, is that how I'm actually doing it? So it really made me slow down and just sink into my practice. It, it just, it was fantastic for my practice and helped me gain some clarity about what works, what doesn't for me. And I'm, I'm very careful to say that the practice that I've developed works for me. I know it works for other people, but it's not, nothing's for everyone. You know, it's like if, it's, if I say it's for everyone, then it's for no one. So um, it was just that sharpening and that deepening of my own practice. And then knowing once I had confirmed myself that these techniques were working, I felt much more confident to share them, to continue sharing them with other people.
0: Well, you've done a ton of work with Natalie Goldberg and maybe you would share with our listeners who Natalie is and some of your experiences doing work with her.
1: Well, Natalie is a best-selling author. Her, She's written 15 or 16 books, but her first big book was a book called Writing Down the Bones, and it's about freeing the writer within. She's also a Zen practitioner. I believe she's actually a Zen priest, but she doesn't – wear the robes or do any of the, you know, kind of Buddhisty things like that. And so all of her teaching about writing comes from her Zen practice. And the main technique that she teaches is called writing practice. And she talks about it as a way of writing before you write. So it's a priori. So it's before writing. And I spent... About 10 years assisting her, working with her, doing writing practice, walking meditation, and a lot of silent sitting in her retreats in Taos, New Mexico. And then I also led some of the group meditations when she was in individual sessions. And if someone was struggling, sometimes she would send them over to talk to me so they could you know, suss out what was going on and I could maybe make suggestions or just hear them just hold space that's a lot of what I did was just hold space be a continuous calm presence in the room but for me writing practice helped me get through that inner critic I have a very sharp inner critic in the first line of my very first book depression hates a moving target the first line is my mind was trying to kill me again and that That still happens. (laughs) I wrote that line many, many years ago, and uh, that still happens. And so when I'm writing, often that voice of who do you think you are, no one cares, all those kinds of things. They, They come up, they rise up from nowhere, whatever. And writing practice, the technique Natalie taught me, helps you push through that or ride through it. Not even push through it, but kind of ride through it. So you just keep writing. While the voice is talking, you just keep writing. And if you keep writing, that voice will still be there, but it won't ever catch up. It will never catch up. You just keep moving. Wow. so i uh, I really appreciate the work I did with Natalie. I, I kind of adore her and I don't kind of adore her. I really adore her. Well, I I was just going to say kind of
0: because you were so dedicated that you moved. You and your husband moved all the way to Taos, New Mexico to work with her. And you lived there for two years. What was the energy, the spiritual energy like in that place? Did you feel it when you arrived there?
1: Well, I actually felt it more when I was visiting than when I lived there. And as you may have experienced, when you go someplace temporarily, you're kind of in a, a bubble, kind of a protective bubble. You're there for a purpose. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would go to her retreats. I usually go a few days early, stay a few days after. And during the retreats, you're in this very protected space. And I kind of thought that that's what Taos was, but it was actually the retreat I fell in love with. And Taos is a very hard place. It is a, it's very remote. Um, the landscape is tough, it's hard, and it just wasn't for me. I don't know how else to say it. It's a beautiful place. I loved. I still love to visit there. I visited many, many times after we moved back. It's an, it was an art colony. So it has this amazing energy, but it also has a great deal of conflict among different populations in the area, and it's really hard to make a living there. So my husband, who is a CPA, ended up having to work multiple jobs to, you know, do what he earned even close to what he was earning here with one job, things like that. And that's true of pretty much everybody that's out there. There's a lot of people who are out there that, um, you know, have other incomes, let's say. And um, so it just, it just wasn't right for us. There's a whole book in that, which I haven't, I've struggled with how to talk about someplace you absolutely love And that you kind of ran screaming from. (laughs) It is
0: interesting. Does (laughs) it it compare to Sedona, Arizona? Is it anything like it? um,
1: There's a similarity in the sense that it's a uh, very tourist kind of area. Sedona is not as remote as Taos. And so because of that, it's maybe not as harsh and not as, I don't know, wild. There is a wildness about Sedona. I've been to Sedona many times also, and it's another beautiful part of the country. And Taos is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Oh, the mountain. Oh, it's just the whole, you know, the landscape is gorgeous. But uh, but there is that similar edge. It draws eccentric people. Taos more draws people who want to get lost, who want to go places and not be found. And I don't mean that, I mean, there is a criminal element there, but more of a, um, it's not a, there's not a great, Easy community. There is community there, and you know if you work, you can find it. But uh, but Sedona, I don't know. I guess there are some similarities. It's just I would just say Sedona is just a little more accessible. It's sure. just closer to things, and um, whereas Taos is, I mean, it's wild. It is just wild.
0: Yeah, and that's what you were told when and you beautiful. first went there. Weren't you? Oh yeah, that's what she book. tried.
1: Yeah. Natalie tried to, I think she really tried to dissuade us, try to warn us off. But by then I you have to remember also, I have mental illness. I am bipolar and um, we figured out later that I was probably in a hypomanic stage. And so a lot of the decisions that I made were very impulsive. And because of the timing, Ed Ed's always up for an adventure and he's very adaptable and just resilient as heck, which is a good thing. And so he was, you know, he was completely up for it, but um, you know, in hindsight, I'm not sorry I went, but it was also really tough. And I wasn't, I wasn't very realistic. I wasn't looking at it realistically. I hadn't, I'd been there twice, I think maybe three times. Mm-hmm. It, it was just a very um, impulsive and just like John kabat Zen's title, wherever you go, there you are. So you wake up, you know, I wake up after the moving truck is left and who's here? Nita, still here. <laughs> all the same problems, all the same mind states, all yeah. the same. And uh, so, yeah, but it's, I just, I just have to say um, it was something I had to do. I'm grateful that we did it. I'm so grateful to Ed for moving there and moving back because we, he's from California and he had some opportunities where we could have gone to California instead of back to Ohio. But I was in such a bad, um, mental health place that I, I needed to go back to my old doctors, to my old friends, to my old neighborhood. I mean, I, not, we ended up different, but you know, I needed some place that was so familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, just because my anxiety was so bad.
0: Right. I see. Yeah. So that's what
1: we did. But, uh, but I, um, it was such a great adventure and it makes a great story.
0: Well, some people would say that the sun that you would get in California might feed you more than in Ohio is, does the sun play a role in this for you?
1: Oh, well, that was probably the main thing in New Mexico that I thought was going to cure me. I really did. I thought that the sunny skies would cure me and yeah, I have seasonal affective disorder, and I get bluer in the winter. Um, but you can use a, a sun lamp. You know, <laughs> you don't yeah. have to move to Taos. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's possible that California, because it's there are wild parts of California, but it's not like Taos. That might have been a good fit. Um, you know, we'll sort of never know at this point. But I, uh, what I wanted, or what I knew I needed, and actually was true, there's a particular green of deciduous trees, especially in the spring and summer, and then, of course, in the fall, the leaves change, all those colors, but that green, that true bluish green, I didn't realize, I really did not realize how much I need, like, my eyes need that Mm -hmm. to to be fed. And it's funny because I just was talking with someone who's from West Virginia, which is three or four hours from here, south of here, not that far, um, has deciduous trees like we have deciduous trees. And she said that she misses the green of West Virginia, that it's even more neon green than Ohio. And here I was thinking Taos has more of an olive green to it. It's more Mediterranean. That's the the terrain, like a rough Mediterranean, is much mm-hmm. more Taos. Because it's in the mountains. It's at 7,000 feet Taos. Right. So it was just interesting to hear that from someone else's perspective. And I've also heard Natalie talk about going back to New York. She's from Brooklyn. And going back to New York and missing the dry dirt of New Mexico, which I will never, never miss the dry dirt of New Mexico. Never so it's just so interesting how we how we find you know because you're in you're in london is that right ontario yes so that's a very green place right that's a very green yes and so there's something about that i don't even know what it is just that color green and that the forestation and the, the process of the trees turning all of that just I needed that and I did not that that completely took me by surprise
0: yeah I know I would miss it if, if I weren't here I, I visited different places and in Arizona I just thought oh my gosh this just feels so bleak it just you know oh man who would enjoy this on a long term well people that maybe lived there forever or whatever some people would but I really hear you when you say that but let's talk about running because that's one of your big things you started Well, I guess you started way back. You know, I I read your, your whole book that was so fascinating. Depression hates a moving target, which is a lot about running and about mental health and everything. But you really got into running kind of in your late 40s. Isn't that right?
1: Yes. Yes. I saw a social media post of a high school friend, which seems like no big deal. But I was at a very emotional low place. It was probably the first time I had been that low since we moved back from Taos, which was in late... It was 1999, 2000, we moved back from Taos. And uh, I'd had a year where just all these people died. It was just awful. Yeah, yeah Including that was my, Yeah, my 24-year-old four year old niece, my father-in-law, my niece's cat, my niece's father, and then finally my mother. It was just... Uh, it was awful. Yeah. And I was coming... that was bad. But then I was sort of coming off of that. I'd been trying to publish a different book, wasn't having any success with that. I just, it just felt like I was hitting dead end after dead end. And um, I've been on medication for a number of years. I was actually on a lot of medication. I had been in therapy. I'm a meditator, longtime meditator. And all of those things really, you know, help all the time. But I just felt like I was at an end. I really was suicidal again. I hadn't been that way in many, many years. And so I saw this post and it said, call me crazy, but this running is getting to be fun. And that was, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I'd seen other people talk about that, you know, people who are athletes or played sports in high school or whatever. But my friend Kim she was my age. She was at least as big as I was then, which I was, I've lost a lot of weight. I knew her in high school. Neither one of us were athletic. And she's running. So I considered calling one of her relatives to do a wellness check, but <laughs> I did not. <laughs> um, but I just watched her. I watched her. And the thing that struck me is that she was having fun. And as I sat there on my sofa, probably with bonbons, you know, Mm
0: -hmm. eating
1: away or whatever I was doing, not doing mostly, I thought, I am not having fun and I need to try something. So um, it took a few months before I checked out the little program. There's an overall training program called Couch to 5K, which is what she was following. Mm -hmm. And it said, and this was as important as her post, it said, 60 seconds of jogging and i swear bruce i swear if it had said 90 seconds of jogging or 60 seconds of running or anything else i would have just closed my laptop and said oh that's not for me which is what a lot of people actually do with meditation too yeah they do Uh, and i just thought 60 seconds jogging okay and so I leashed up the dog, Mr. Dog, our yellow Labrador, and took him down to this hidden ravine area in our neighborhood in the middle of the afternoon when nobody was probably home anyway. But I was, am, a little paranoid, <laughs> um, a little self-centered about what people think about me. And, um, and I ca- carried a little uh, digital kitchen timer, one of those little white plastic digital yeah. kitchen timers down there because I didn't have cell phones yet. Or maybe we had cell phones, but I don't know if it had a time on. Yeah. And, uh, and I jogged for 60 seconds. And something about doing something I said I would do, the physical activity, being out in nature, it just all came together. And, of course, the training plan said other things besides 60 seconds of jogging. But that tiny little interval which kind of reminded me of writing practice where you just do it for 10 minutes as a timed period of writing. So it's in this little container that sort of holds you. Um, It just worked. It just worked. And I kept going. And then eventually I had to get brave and Leave the ravine, <laughs> run in, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the neighborhood. Which was it? Seems so silly, but it was actually a big deal for me because, because again, my mind was trying to kill me, and still sometimes does. And so um, that was the inner struggle of just trying to do this thing. And eventually, it um, it turned to something else. I I never intended to do any of the races. I mean, really, I just was doing this for myself. I didn't tell anybody for a while. I didn't even tell my husband who's my best, best friend or my sister, who's my next, next best friend. And, uh, eventually she, um, I don't know what we're talking. About. I eventually told her. And then a few weeks later there was this five K she was involved in a group that was raising money to raise, um, to, uh, for research her. It was her daughter. The 24 year old was her daughter who died of cancer, her only child. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, uh, and she said, oh, there's this 5K. And I said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm a private runner. No, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> and so it took me a while to kind of get over myself and, you know, think about Jamie, think about my niece, think about how she suffered. And, oh, my gosh, can I put my ego uh, aside just for a day to raise some money for a cause that might help somebody else to not endure what she had to? And, um, and that blew my world open because, If you go, especially those charity races like that, you will see people of all sizes, all shapes, all ages, all races. They'll be in spandex, they'll be in cotton, they'll be in, you know, they'll have dogs or not dogs, they'll have strollers and balloons and just nothing like the Boston Marathon, which is what most people think of, or the New York City Marathon, or, you know, the Toronto Marathon. Um, What the things you think of when you think of runners, people, I mean, I thought of these elite athletes that were from Kenya and ran, you know, uh, five minute miles, all this stuff. And, oh no, it's a whole different thing. People walk, people do run, walk. And it, that, um, that experience just really gave me permission to start thinking of myself as a runner. I still, I have this thing about questioning whether I'm a real anything. And it's a, just an a continual identity crisis. And that's kind of a theme through the book. Am I a real runner now? I'm a real runner now. And what is a real runner anyway? So, uh, but that's how it, that's how it got me into that world of um, you know, what is this thing anyway?
0: Yeah, it yes, was pretty fascinating a, for sure. And the bond that you had with your dog, tell us about that and how your dog sort of helped you through all this.
1: Well, he um, I will say spoiler alert, the book was written in, the early uh, 2000, it was like 2010, 2012, and the, um, so the period of time was 2010 2012, and so Mr. Dog has gone to the great dog park in the sky, his name was Morgan, but I've had many, many dogs, and he was a gem, he was just the gentlest spirit, and just the kindest dog, and he had this very even temper about him, now he could be vicious if he was trying to guard you or anything like that. But when he ran, he had this pace, this just uh, easy form, very effortless. And so he kind of became a coach. I thought, gosh, if I could run with that ease, um, with that sense of not efforting, just leaning into the run, Mm -hmm. just moving my feet and not uh, trying to force it, which, of course, that's a lot of meditation practice, too. And then I found this... um, running training program called chi running and that's their whole philosophy it's originated from tai chi mm-hmm. so spending the time with him out there on the trail it was lovely because i already loved him dearly but you know we'd be two or three miles in and i'd look down and there he was just pat pat pat, pat uh, you know not nothing bothering him maybe a little bug on his ear or something like that um i'd take a little kibble for him uh energy gel for me We'd sit on the bench and have our snack together. And then we'd go on. And he just was always up for it. And the, the funniest thing, which the dog we have now, we have another dog, uh, Scarlett, who's also a yellow lab. And I think this might just be a dog thing. But if I accidentally hit, uh, like for a while, I carried the kitchen timer. And then eventually I did get a watch. But if I hit any of those buttons and they made even the tiniest sound, he could be clear across the house. And he would just come tearing over, <laughs> run, mom! run, run, mom, run, run. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Or I'd pick up my shoes or anything like that. I and mean, he knew. And then, of course, there were often certain times of day because of the weather, especially in the summer when it's hot. Um, I would either run early in the morning or in the evening. And so he would, so it was sort of like how they know when it's time to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, when they know it's, oh, it's dinner time. Huh? And they start circling the bowl. Well, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, it's time to run. It's the time to run. It's getting dark. It's getting dark. And uh, so he was just like a little coach because he was just there. I mean, they, dogs have this way about them of just unconditional love. Just, ah, just they just do.
0: They sure I do. Mean, they,
1: yeah. And um, and so it was. He was just like a little coach, is all I can really say. Um, kind of like a little cheerleader. And very sad when I didn't take him if it was too hot. Or sometimes when I did eventually join a big group he was very well behaved and probably would have been fine, but I just didn't feel comfortable with 500 people with him yeah. there. You know, he might. Tra- it's, it just was too many possibilities for people to get injured or upset. Sure. People do not. Everybody likes dogs. No. So, uh, so he would give me the look. Oh, Oh, the shit mother, you're going without me. Oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Scarlett kind of does that, but he just had these facial expressions, just,
0: But you sometimes did take him with you on a on a marathon, didn't you? A few times. I took
1: him to some races. Yes, shorter races. Yeah, shorter races. He never did a marathon with me. He did. I think the longest training run he did might have been eight miles or ten miles in in our neighborhood. Um, uh, But yeah, there were some races that allowed dogs, and so he did um, quite a few of those. And oh, he was so funny because you know it was I was used to just the two of us running together and and I'm a back of the packer unapologetic slower runner and oh my gosh they would hit that siren at the start and he would just lunge. and I I mean I I wasn't used to that he would that's not who he was at all he would just I mean he just would get so excited and want to run with the faster runners and, and and he'd look back at me like mom, they're getting away. Mom, come on, come on, they're getting away. And I'm like Morgan. This is this is the best I can do. I'm sorry, buddy. This is it. you picked badly in terms yeah. of running partners. Oh, well, that's funny. And I think you know. I mean, he may he probably could have run a lot faster, but um, often if you're not trained that well, then you, know, you start out too fast and end up um, not not doing as well. But but oh my gosh, he wanted to go with those other people just.
0: <laughs> oh, that is so And the funny. looks
1: he'd give me. Oh my gosh. He was, he was just a great dog. He just was, he was, um, just a good, good, good boy. And he lived a long time. He lived, I think he was 16, which wow. is for a lab. That's a long, he just had a long, healthy life. I mean, he well, very, it really came long.
0: across in your book about your bond. And didn't you win an award for that book that was from, uh, the dog writers association of America?
1: Yes. Yes. We won um, the human animal bond. It was a Maxwell medallion award for the human animal bond. And I thought that was perfect because that's, that's what I tried to convey. I mean, the book's about a lot of things. It's about how to run. It's about how I run. It's about my mental health journey. Um, But it's about how having a dog uh, helped me. I mean, it started out as a decoy. I just, I leased him up to go try to run because I thought then people would just think I was walking the dog. <laughs> I mean, that's really how it started. It was pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> but And again, in the middle of a weekday afternoon when there was probably no one home in March, oh. um, but uh, down in the ravine. But yeah, he was, he just was such a good training partner and he would have gone, I think he probably could have gone miles and miles more, but I was just not sure how that worked. And I didn't run, in places where I could let him loose because there's a lot of people that run on trails where they're more remote and they can let their dogs loose. And then the dog can stop and go as it feels comfortable and then catch up with you. And that's very different from a dog running right by your side in front of you the whole time because they don't, they will not pace themselves. They will pace with you. They are your, I mean, they will kill themselves for you. And Mm. so it's up to us as owners to, to watch that and be careful. So, yeah yeah, well, he's great. great like fun. I
0: said, I really enjoyed reading the book. it was it was a lot of fun to read, but your most recent book, Make Every Move a Meditation was featured in The Wall Street Journal. Tell us about that. How did that book get featured there?
1: Some reporter saw it. She said, I, I asked her, how did you find the book? because yeah. <laughs> can I replicate that, please? <laughs> um, but she said she was doing a feature on books about the mind-body connection. Mm-hmm. And she found it interesting. It was, you know, up on Amazon for pre order, which it's up for pre-order. And she found it interesting because I said that you could meditate while you were doing any form of physical activity. Mm-hmm. Zumba, pickleball, you know, jujitsu, tennis, running, of course. Yeah. Um, and that's the that's the theory of the book and that's the instruction in the book. And she found that very interesting that someone could possibly meditate while they were playing pickleball. She just thought that was astounding. And so I explained to her how I meditate while I run and how I train people to meditate while they're doing other physical activities.
0: Yeah. And could you explain a little bit more of that to us right here so that my listeners can hear? Yeah. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. So there's a kind of a, you know, step process, but The first thing is to pick a period of time, Mm -hmm. because if you remember when I was running that 60 seconds of jogging, what that did was create a little container so my mind could calm down and say, all right, this is only 60 seconds. We can do this for 60 seconds. So maybe it's 60 seconds, maybe it's five minutes, or it could be an interval, like any time you're getting ready to serve. If it's your, if you're playing a racket sport of some kind, or if you're swimming anytime you're turning, you know, you're hitting the wall and you're turning. So pick an interval. And it, like I said, it could be a time period or a particular part of your fitness activity. So choose that first. Then choose what, what we call in meditation, an object of meditation. It's when people learn to meditate, often... They're told to use their breath because everyone breathes. It's a common denominator. Sure. So that's a good one. In physical fitness, you can use your breath. That's a, you know we, we often exert ourselves, and so the breath is more apparent. But sometimes it's easier to use a body sensation. So it might be, like for me, I have a congenital defect in my ankle. I call it my wonky ankle, my left ankle. And so there are always a few little sensations there that I can rely on. They're always there. And so it's predictable and easy to locate. So I tend to use that as my object. So I've chosen my time. I'm going to do this for three minutes. I've chosen my object. It's going to be the sensations in my left foot. Then I take off and do my activity. Simple thing. Notice those sensations with what we call awareness, which is kind of a focused attention, and then equanimity, which is a mind state. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But the the idea is just that you make that your object, and then when your mind wanders, which it will, very gently bring it back to whatever you have chosen, just for that period of time. And the gently is the equanimity. That's the part that's actually possibly the most important. The remembering and the the gently so I remember oh that's right I'm meditating and I don't berate myself for my mind wandering because the mind's thought mind's job is to think thoughts that's what it does it thinks thoughts so my mind wandered I very gently bring it back and that gentleness trains me to be gentle with myself to be gentle with the world and uh, then I go back to focusing on whatever I've selected and then in that awareness we're not thinking about, you know, I'm not thinking about my ankle or my foot. I'm actually experiencing it. So what does it feel like? Is it tingly? Is it solid? Is it hot? Is it cold? Getting curious about it. That's kind of part of the equanimity too. Kind of a little bit like a scientific experiment. What does left ankle feel like? What is that? And then I just do that forever for whatever period of time I've selected. So if someone's playing, um, Uh, The racket sports, uh, uh, for some reason, that's coming up right now because pickleball is sort of all the rage. But I would say anytime you're getting ready to serve, just for a second, notice what the racket feels like in your hand.
0: Mm -hmm. Just
1: just feel it. What does it feel like? And don't not thinking about it, but what is the actual experience of hand-holding racket? And then play. You know, you don't have to be in a conscious state, self-conscious state. Just play. But just that moment of dropping in, because uh, as you know, John Kabat-Zinn said, this is about being in the present moment. We miss so much because we're off in the future. We're off in the past. So it's about training the mind to be in this moment right here and doing that on purpose because meditation is actually a natural mind state. There's a chapter in the new book called You Might Already Be Doing It because often we sort of fall into a meditative state um, just naturally, in, especially in uh, fitness activities where you're exerting yourself and the concentration becomes required. That, that concentration is a big part of it. Um, so this book and meditation practice in general is about learning how to do that on purpose so that you can train yourself to do it when you want to as opposed to only having it happen by accident.
0: Yeah, and it's a great book. It, it really is good. And it reminds me of getting into the flow. You know, some people talk about that. And it's to me, it's a similar kind of thing. Would you agree?
1: Yes, yes. There's a lot of overlap. It's not entirely the same. Um, but there's a lot of overlap in the methods and the benefits. And I haven't I'm, I'm very careful because I flow has become kind of a scientific term Mm. and so i don't feel like i'm expert enough in that to say yes it's exactly the same but i know that there's a ton of overlap and the benefits are the same and that's i think the flow is more of the um it's it's kind of when you do it, I mean, you can do it on purpose, but it also happens accidentally. Right. So there's, again, there's that overlap of where you do the meditation. It's just a little bit different technique. And with meditation, with, with flow, you are aiming. This is, this is what's kind of hard because with, with meditation, we try not to have a goal, which is very weird in our culture to think about not having a goal, because as soon as you have a goal, then there's a craving Mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean you don't want things, but it's about holding the things you want with those kind of open hands and then being grateful when they come or when they, you know, when you have them, but then being able to let them go so that you don't suffer when they go and trusting that they'll come back. So it's a little bit different. Whereas flow, you're really trying to make it happen. And so, like I said, it's a, it's just a, it's a tiny tweak of a difference, But I, the literature on flow is so powerful and so helpful that, um, yeah, do that too. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Very similar.
0: Yeah. Anita, I want to ask you a question about bullying because I always ask a question on my show about that. And I don't know if you have a story or some thoughts about bullying and how mindfulness maybe would have helped in a bullying situation. Do you have something you can share with us about that?
1: Yes, I think when I was in high school, I mm-hmm. was kind of a different kid. But um, everybody sort of feels that way. But I really was a lot, had a lot of just things. I came from an alcoholic family. I you know was in and out of my own drinking and addiction, many very addictive behaviors with uh, substances to people things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the mindful awareness, the mindful awareness of my own behavior and realizing that there was a, um, I don't know how to really say it, but that there was something driving me that I was unaware of. And that then as a result of my actions, I would get bullied because other people didn't like what I was doing. And so that awareness that there was something else going on so much deeper that I could have possibly worked with to maybe, maybe modify my own behavior or at least be able to be with it without all the shame and guilt and things. And then when the bullying did happen, having the compassion, because that's one of the things of meditation is we develop mind states, one of which is, um, is love and kindness or, um, um, and so having the compassion for the other per- other person to realize that they too were coming from some kind of place of often fear. That's what usually it is. We're coming out of fear. And we do something either to to shrink ourselves down to protect ourselves from the fear or to blow ourselves up to be bigger in order to combat the fear. There's always these other things at work. And all I thought was I was just a bad person. I just Mm. thought I was a bad person. I was flawed beyond help. Um, And and mostly that I just had to get out of there because uh, I didn't, you know, I just had to get out of there. And I, um, I mean, it's taken years of therapy to help me understand that. But in the meditation practice, sitting with memories of that, the thoughts that come up now, the body sensations, especially being able to be with the discomfort and then also having fond memories that I didn't really remember because there was so much of the kind of bad things that I didn't let them happen. And when you're still, or when you do meditation, even in motion, when you let the rest of the world drop away, you know, whether it's through, in the writing practice, in the sitting, in moving meditation, the rest of the world drops away and joyous memories can come up. And I, it, they kind of surprised me because I sort of had put um, high school as a dark cloud that, oh, I never wanted to go back. And I actually went back to my high school reunion A few years ago and reconnected with some of the people who were some of my fiercest critics and there it's been interesting there's still a lot of them that i don't care for what you know we just start so different that Mm -hmm. i i don't know that we'll ever be close friends but it was a way to heal myself and heal the past and not have to be in that reactive place anymore because the reactive place you have no power you're just you know Um, blown about by every wind that's what they talk about and i did not want to be that i wanted to be the tree that bends but doesn't break so yeah yeah, that's my bullying experience thank you for sharing everybody's had i think everybody's had something like that
0: a lot of people have i'm sure but nita as we move forward in the interview i want to ask you five quick answer questions so we're going to need to zoom through these and just 30 second answers are perfect the first one is this who is one person who has been a mindfulness inspiration to you
1: Darren Larson, oh. Darren Larson, look him up. He's a local meditation practitioner. I love what he does. And okay. Shenzhen Young. Okay. It's a Shenzhen Young, but Darren Larson, look him up.
0: Okay. My second question is about emotions. Tell us how mindfulness has helped you deal with your emotions.
1: Being able to withstand <clears throat> painful emotions and feel positive emotions, both. That's what mindfulness practice has allowed me to do. I don't have to push on pull on either one. I can be with what arises, no matter what it is.
0: Let's talk about breathing. And as a runner, I know that you'll have some wisdom about this. What comments do you have about breathing that maybe are related to mindfulness?
1: Notice how much you hold your breath during the day. Just notice. And when I'm running, often I'm forcing my breath and instead I will try to let my body really react, relax, and let it take the natural breath. Sometimes it's with my steps, sometimes it's not, but let it just be natural.
0: Right. Nita, I highly recommend your book, Make Every Move a Meditation. Are there any other books you would recommend that are about mindfulness?
1: Well, the we keep mentioning John Kabat-Zinn, yeah, but sure. the one that if you ha- can only have one mindfulness book in addition to Make Every Move Meditation, right. um, you can see all the flags, but Mindfulness in Plain English by Bhante Gunaratana. This is the simplest, most straightforward book, um, and Bhante G is a monk, in he has a retreat center in West Virginia, um, and it is just the most straightforward book about meditation practice mindfulness. I just recommend it to everybody.
0: Well, thanks for sharing that. And are there any apps that you would recommend that can help with mindfulness?
1: Um, You know, I don't actually do apps myself, but my husband loves Sam Harris's app. Oh, I just, I just, if you just look up Sam Harris app, you'll find it. But he has a, a meditation app and it's like a, it's not called Mindfulness Bell. That's a different one. That my. That, there's a guy that does that. That's good, too. But it's the kind of thing where it just will go off during the day at random times. Mm-hmm. And then he will stop and listen just for a minute or two. And it just brings him back in the moment. Um, so, yeah, Sam Harris... Um, I can't believe I can't remember that. I'm really sorry. I should have written it no, down.
0: No, no, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, wow. It's been fascinating talking to you, Nita, about all of this. And I know that your website is NitaSweeney.com, N-I-T-A-S-W-E-E-N-E-Y, NitaSweeney.com. What am I talking about? Did I say .ca? <laughs> Dot yeah. .com, yes. Dot com, of course. And uh, yeah, so check out that website, Mindful Tribe. And uh, it's just been so much fun talking to you, Anita. Do you have a final word of advice for our listeners?
1: If you're struggling, just hang on. Just stay. Because everything changes. The way you feel will change. The world we know will change. Um, and so just hang on. Just Stay here. Please, please stay here. We need you. We need you.
0: Thank you so much for staying here and sharing your wisdom through your writing and everything that you do. Thank you for being on Mindfulness Mode, Nita.
1: Oh, thank you. I thank for Thanks so much for the work you're doing. I, this is just such good stuff. I really appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye-bye. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks for joining us again today. If you enjoyed this episode with Nita Sweeney, you'll want to check out her website, nitasweeney.com. And she has several books, as we mentioned on the show. She has a book called Make Every Move a Meditation. She has a book called You Should Be Writing. And she has the book that we talked about, Depression Hates a Moving Target and she's also got a th- a free ebook on her website that you can download if you just want to check out her writing for free. It's a short little ebook. I just downloaded it myself and thought, "Wow, this is really valuable. It's a quick read. It's so valuable. It's called Three Tools for a Happier, Healthier Mind." So I hope this Uh, episode has helped you. I hope you've enjoyed this interview. And of course, I always appreciate hearing from you, my valued guests and listeners. You can email me bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. So with that, take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus and happiness.
1: Stay in the mode.